from St. Louis Public Radio. This is St. Louis on the Air. Yeah, he, um, he's not really sure whether to um, accept his fate or hold out any hope for some last-minute reprieve. There are six people that he put on death row that are on death row. There are ten people that he put on death row that have already been executed. There were also a number of cases where they were reversed or remanded by higher courts, and, and that's how we get to the 23 people where this happened on his watch. And so in some ways, this is his biggest legacy. Mm, and he was ousted shortly after Michael Brown's death. I think it's fair to say that movement really led to his ousting. It absolutely did. And this is something that we're going to be getting into in the second installment in this series, which is slated to run next week. I'm Emily Woodbury. The life of Kevin Johnson has been punctuated by tragedy. 17 years ago, the then 19-year-old St. Louis resident killed Kirkwood Police Sergeant William McEntee. Then, St. Louis County Prosecuting Attorney Robert McCullough successfully convinced a predominantly white jury in 2007 to sentence Johnson, who is black, to the death penalty. Since then, several appeals have been denied. And, unless there is a successful last-minute legal maneuver in his case, Johnson will die by lethal injection at the end of this month. Recently, the death row inmate sat down with Riverfront Times staff writer Monica Abradovic. It's the first time he's ever given an interview with a journalist and possibly the last time the public will get to read his words. You can read Monica's story about Johnson's story titled A Date with the Executioner, Kevin Johnson Killed a Kirkwood Cop. After 17 years grappling with his guilt, his only hope is a last-minute reprieve. You can read that story wherever you get the Riverfront Times. You can also catch it on our website at stlpr.org. And Monica joins me now. Monica, thanks for coming in today. Hi, thanks for having me. So the murder of which Kevin Johnson was convicted was, as you describe in your piece, it was simply brutal and something close to an execution. But Kevin and Kirkwood Police Sergeant William McEntee had actually met earlier that afternoon on July 5th in an incident that ended with Kevin seeing his younger brother die while McEntee, you wrote, quote, barred his mother from entering the house. Take us through these two incidents and how they ended in Kevin murdering McEntee. Yeah, sure. So um, early earlier in that day, July 5th, 2005, um, Kevin Johnson was in his great-grandmother's home where he, he lived. And um, he, had a, um, he had violated his probation sometime uh, before that day. And um, police saw his car on the street in front of the house and um, were, were looking at the car. And um, at first, police, um, it looked like they were maybe possibly going to tow it in uh, Kevin's perception. So he, he worried that they were going to take his car. So... Uh, his 12-year-old brother, uh, Bam Bam, uh, that was his nickname. His real name's Joseph Long. Um, so he, he walked up to uh, Bam Bam and uh, told him, hey, bro, uh, please uh, go give these keys to our grandma. She lived right next door and tell her to make it look like she's going to go drive this car. Uh, so Bam Bam did that, and um, his grandma got the keys, uh, waved them in the air and said, uh, that, that that's a, that's my car, and um, I'm going to to drive that. 
Um, but then all of a sudden, uh, some commotion stirred. Uh, Bam Bam was suffering a seizure. And um, Kevin was watching all of this from a window in his great-grandmother's house next door. Um, uh, and then later that day, uh, Bam Bam's death would be become official. He had uh, a congenital heart defect that he had lived with. Um, but uh, McCullough actually, or I'm sorry, McEntee didn't actually arrive um, until after Bam Bam's seizure started. And uh, Kevin says he watched all this play um, as uh, McEntee arrived around the same time an ambulance did. And um, it looked to him like McEntee was um, uh, preventing his mother from tending to Bam Bam. And um, uh, McEntee really, he didn't have a whole lot to do with Bam Bam's death, uh, whether police had delayed an ambulance getting there or not. Um, but then they would meet again about two hours after that. And it sounded like from reports that at the time, Kevin really felt like McEntee was barring his mother from entering the house, that he he was responsible for Bam Bam's death. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in, in, in some twisted way, he did um, blame McEntee. And even though now he, he doesn't really blame him at all. Now he, he said he blames himself of sorts, too. Yeah, he, he feels a uh, great responsibility for, for what he's done. And um, he, he looks back on that day a lot. And um, really, with just uh, some confusion, he, he told me he doesn't really even know why the shooting happened. Um, he was just very heartstruck after the brother, the death of his brother. They were very close. Um, so uh, when that happened, it, it was just an unfortunate play out of events that uh, derailed two lives. So as I mentioned at the outset, Kevin has never talked with a reporter before um, about his story until he sat down with you at the Potosi Correctional Center in Washington County. What was that conversation like? Um, it was a it was a good conversation. And um, I didn't really have any expectations leading into it. I um I had never uh, interviewed someone in prison before, but um, he answered all of my uh, questions very thoroughly and very thoughtfully. And um, before then, I, I had read a, a couple of his books. He's written two books, uh, one called Cop Killer, um, about his uh, the lead up to his crime, and then another um, second a second book about his life in prison. So I, I had an idea of, of who he was. Um, but he, it just felt like a normal conversation, and that might be a boring answer. Um, but I, I, it didn't occur to me until after I left that, um, wow, this this uh, this man's probably not going to be alive in another month or so. And did you get the sense that he was very aware of that fact, and that was on his mind? Yeah, I, um, he's he doesn't really know whether to hold up hope or um, prepare himself for for death. There's um, a lot of people fighting for him. Um, there's a petition going around. I think uh, about 9,000 people have signed it. Last time I checked uh, for clemency for him. Um, his lawyers are also doing some work behind the scenes. Um, but um, but yeah, he um, he's not really sure whether to um, accept his fate or hold out any hope for some last-minute reprieve. He told you that he feels some responsibility for his brother Bam Bam's death because he told him to go get the keys um, to the car. Did he also express regret for the altercation with Sergeant McGenty? 
Oh, yeah. Um, that, that weighs on him every day, he told me. Um, he had known McEntee even before that day. Uh, Kevin told me he um, he had a bit of a reputation in Meacham Park, the neighborhood that he grew up in. But um, whether whatever that reputation was, uh, that McEntee was still a father. I mean, he had three children. I think the oldest was 13 at the time of his death and the youngest seven years old. And um, and he also had a wife, and he was uh, very beloved. Um, a lot of his coworkers who I spoke to um, just said he was a stand-up guy and um, a great pleasure to work with. So uh, that, that yeah, that really eats at him that he uh, killed this man who now, in retrospect, he knows really didn't have much to do with his little brother's death. You also interviewed several Meacham Park residents who witnessed the tragedy, Kevin's family members, even teachers who knew him at the time. What stood out most to you about some of the things you learned in those conversations? Um, I'd say um, even sort of separate from Kevin, um, we're all just living our lives and um, whatever path we're on can divert at any given moment. And um, unfortunately, the path that, that Kevin was on always went uh, in the wrong path. Um, when he was younger, um, he his mother... Uh, she was dealing with her own trauma and her own issues, and um, she wasn't really around for him and his older brother. And then um, his father was also incarcerated for most of his early years, so there was no one really there um, to love him, it felt like. And um, his educators now um, feel this sort, this sense of guilt almost for not stepping in sooner and um, not recognizing any warning signs, even though from what I understand, he didn't really have a lot of warning signs. He was just a quiet kid sitting in the back of class and um, didn't really get in too much trouble. Um, So how could they have known? For you, Monica, what is, I mean, I'm sure there are a lot of takeaways you could take from this story, but what's one of the biggest takeaways that you want readers and now listeners to understand about this story? Yeah, um, I don't know. The death penalty isn't necessarily a hot political topic. I mean, most people these days, we're talking about abortion, uh, gun rights. Um, But um, I think it's important for us to sit back and consider um, what our state uh, is doing, uh, whether you're for the death penalty or or not. And we're not trying to push any opinions on people, but um, this is a man who... um, he committed his crime when he was 19. Um, some people see that as a child, and uh, he had the life that he had, and uh, we hope people um, consider that. Well, Monica, thank you so much for coming in today. Thank you. Monica Obradovic is a Riverfront Times staff writer, and her latest story digs into the murder of Kirkwood Police Sergeant William McEntee and the story of the man who killed them, him, then 19-year-old Kevin Johnson. We need to take a short break. We'll continue this conversation when we come back talking about Missouri's death penalty and Johnson's case. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio.
Welcome back. We're talking about the Riverfront Times' latest cover story, A Date with the Executioner. Kevin Johnson killed a Kirkwood cop. After 17 years grappling with his guilt, his only hope is a last-minute reprieve. The piece kicks off a four-part investigation that will examine the death penalty in St. Louis County. And here with us now to talk about this series titled Shadow of Death, a series looking at St. Louis and the death penalty, is someone you might recognize. It's the former host of this show, Sarah Fenske. Sarah, welcome. Thank you so much, Emily. Sarah is now the executive editor of Euclid Media Group. She oversees editorial content at eight newspapers across the U.S., including St. Louis's own Riverfront Times. This series pays particular attention to Bob McCullough. This is the county prosecutor who served 27 years in office. And during that time, he sentenced 23 people to die. Six of them, including Kevin Johnson, now await their execution. Sarah, what did you learn about Bob McCullough during this investigation regarding regarding both Johnson's case and these others? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm glad you brought this um, in through McCullough because, uh, you know, he's been gone now almost four years, and yet he has such a long legacy. And so voters ousted him. I think they really wanted change in that office. And yet there are six people that he put on death row that are on death row. There are 10 people that he put on death row that have already been executed. There were also a number of cases where they were reversed or remanded by higher courts. And and that's how we get to the 23 people where this happened on his watch. And so in some ways, this is his biggest legacy. Mm, And he was ousted shortly after Michael Brown's death. I think it's fair to say that movement really led to his ousting. It absolutely did. And this is something that we're going to be getting into in the second installment in this series, which is slated to run next week. Um, Like this installment, it'll be in uh, the Riverfront Times as well as the St. Louis Jewish Light, potentially also St. Louis Public Radio, which uh, ran this first chapter on its website, and really looking at how he felt about the death penalty. Does he have any regrets about his use of it? How does he fit in nationally? Was he an outlier? These are all questions that we're going to be digging into in the second installment in this series. Oh, in 2021, Kevin Johnson's legal team filed an application with St. Louis County Prosecuting Attorney Wesley Bell to investigate allegations of pervasive racial discrimination on the part of Bob McCullough. Can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, this is something that um, Wesley Bell's office wanted time to look into, and they had to get a special prosecutor in charge of that because the person in their office had a conflict. And so they have not been able to complete that yet. And they have asked the Supreme Court to slow down this execution. At this point, the Supreme Court hasn't done that. There has been a study that was done by a political science professor out of North Carolina, and he says that he sees troubling racial patterns here, that we see people much more like to end up um, on death row or being put in front of a jury for a capital case if we have a black killer and a white victim. That's a really troubling pattern. Now, this guy looked at it statistically, and he says that this ends up being a big determinant of who ends up with these capital cases during McCullough's tenure. You know, and I want to bring it back to Kevin Johnson's case briefly, because in 2012, the U.S. Supreme Court issued a decision requiring states to rethink how they handle youthful offenders. As Monica mentioned, Kevin was 19 um, when this murder happened. Um, You know, since that 2012 decision, Missouri has executed only one man for a crime he committed as a teen. Do you think at all, I know we talked about there has to be kind of a a very... um, 
successful last minute legal maneuver in his case. Do you see that happening and maybe his age playing into that? Unfortunately, I don't. So as you know, um, when I was host of this show, I was really interested in these issues of juveniles who committed heinous crimes and went on to be rehabilitated in prison. And this Supreme Court verdict that you mentioned from 2012 is what opened the door to all of that. Unfortunately, um, because of some of the details of Kevin's case, he does not fall under that. There's not going to be a successful way to get to the U.S. Supreme Court and say, hey, this guy was a teenager. We can't put him to death. Why that legal ruling from the Supreme Court is so interesting is it says that teenage brains are not like other brains. It kind of makes sense when you hear Kevin talk about the crime. He didn't even really know what he was doing because kids are more impetuous. And so I think, and lawyers who've looked at his case think, this is something that the courts really should keep in mind when they evaluate someone like Kevin. But it doesn't help at all on a legal front when it comes to this individual case. You alluded to the other stories in this investigative series, but could you tell us a little bit more? What can we expect to to find in the weeks to come? Yeah, so this is pretty cool. This is the inaugural series from a new nonprofit that seeks to support uh, journalism in St. Louis and wants to do meaty journalism, just going beyond those daily deadlines that we're all tormented by, whether we're on a talk show or a newspaper. Um, And so the River City Journalism Fund has provided funding for these stories. And so we're looking at Kevin Johnson's case this week. Uh, We're going to be looking at, at Bob McCullough and his overall record, how he thought about the death penalty, how he thinks about it today, and how that plays out statistically. We're also looking at the case of Marcellus Williams. People may remember this. He was given a last-minute reprieve when he was just, I think, days or or weeks from from death uh, by Eric Greitens. Um, And now his case has been in limbo ever since. So we're going to get people up to speed on where that is. We're also probably going to have to report on the next step for Kevin Johnson. I mean, there has been an execution date set on that, and we plan to to keep watch on that and bear witness to what happens. So there's a lot of pieces of, of this we're looking at. We've said it's a four-part series. There may end up being even more parts, but we're hopeful that if people check back at St. Louis Public Radio, the, the St. Louis Jewish Light, the Riverfront Times, there's going to be a lot of good, meaty stories dealing with this issue. And you are the executive director of the River City Journalism Fund. How do you hope this fund will shape St. Louis journalism going forward? Yeah, I, I caution to add that is a completely unpaid uh, role. <laughs> <laughs> this is just something I'm doing on the side. I do feel that uh, St. Louis's legacy publications could use help not just to survive but to thrive. And we're hoping that providing this additional funding will be really encouraging people to tackle these meatier subjects and to be able to find the time to do it. So I hope to see more of these kind of series down the road. Of, of course, it all depends on if the people of St. Louis and the philanthropists step up to support this venture. And briefly in our final minute here, how does it how does it work? So um, it's actually the successful model pioneered by Dick Weiss with that 63106 project we've talked about on this show. Uh, the nonprofit provides funding, gets reporters working on these subjects that they're excited about working about, and then those stories uh, become available free of charge to local media outlets as long as they're not behind a paywall. And that sort of shares that journalism um, with all of the readers of St. Louis. And it's funded through philanthropy and done by local journalists for local readers. And we should mention, you mentioned Kevin Johnson's execution date. That is set for November 29th, and you will be following that story. You can find that reporting wherever you get the Riverfront Times. That's right. Thank you. Sarah, thank you so much for coming in today. Emily, it's been great to see you again. Sarah Fedsky is the executive editor of Euclid Media Group and executive director of the River City Journalism Fund. This episode was produced by Danny Wisentowski. 
Audio engineering and podcast design by Aaron Dorr. Our production intern is Avery Rogers. Our executive producer is Alex Hoyer. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. Our podcast proudly supports St. Louis artists by using music from Life Creative Group. Do you find yourself regularly listening to episodes of St. Louis on the Air? Suggest us to a friend you think might enjoy our conversations. And leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the simplest way to help people discover our show. Thank you. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association. Missouri produces wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details on the variety of products made in the state are at ChooseWood.com.